Oh, we've got a good crowd this morning for the Christmas lesson. Uh, this is a rerun, um, but that means I ought to be getting it right. Uh, I have tweaked it and changed it a little bit, and some of you were not in the class for the last time we taught the Christmas class, and so it'll be new to you. And, and for those who were in the class, maybe uh, uh, you're of like my kids who can watch the same show over and over and over. This is a joyous class for me to get to teach. I love to talk about Christmas. It is the most wonderful time of the year. We will probably need a little bit more volume when we hit some of these other songs as we go through here. We've got a few songs that we're going to insert. I don't play that much of the songs, so you've got to enjoy them while they they come in and and go out. Uh, Pastor Fleming and I uh, did not sit down and compare notes to our our lessons um, uh, uh, this morning, and so he had a little bit of of magi in his and i've got a little bit of magi in mine but we'll uh, i'll try to leave his alone figuring that you can remember it from last hour so uh um, we'll go through it as we do the story about the birth of jesus is an incredible story in the gospels it's found in two of the gospels it's found in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. And so we start our survey this morning looking at the Gospel of Matthew and seeing what Matthew has to say about it. We're going to look not only at, at uh, the, what the Gospels have to say, the Bible, but we'll look at how the early church developed and we'll carry it through to some of our modern traditions. That's our goal today as we go through this, interspersing it with songs because that's one of the constants that most of us all gather around during this holiday time period. Matthew starts with the genealogy. Uh, he, he's got the genealogy of Jesus going all the way back. Now that's an appropriate picture because that's a family tree. <clears throat> it just gets worse. Um, so, so what Matthew does is he gives this genealogy of Jesus going all the way back, showing that Jesus is in fact the son of Abraham, ultimately, but I mean the son of David and the son of Abraham. The genealogy goes all the way back through. After Matthew gives that genealogy, which, by the way, he gives most likely because his gospel was written primarily for Jews. And so the Jews needed to see Jesus as the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. So it's very important. The Jews were meticulous about their genealogies. And it's very important that Jesus' genealogy actually show that he comes through the prophetic promises of David and going back through all the way to Abraham. And so Matthew starts there. From there, Matthew goes to the story about Mary and Mary being pregnant with child even though she had not known a man. She was a virgin. And yet Mary finds herself pregnant because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now the painting that we've put up here is a significant painting um, because it shows Mary, and underneath in Greek it says Miriam Theotokos. Theotokos is Greek. It means the God-bearer, the one bearing God. One of the biggest fights in the early church was exactly how Jesus was divine. And part of that fight included a question of whether or not he was God when in the womb of Mary. Was he God from conception on, but we don't use the word conception. We use a different word. We use the word incarnation. So from the time of the incarnation, was that in the womb of Mary or was it afterwards? 
And the early church decided that the orthodox position, the biblical position, was that Mary was with child from the Holy Spirit, and that child then was God. Now, you might be sitting there quizzically saying, well, why would they even be fussing that point? The reason why is because they were very philosophical at the time, some of the thought leaders in the church. And the thought process was, how could Mary, being a fallen woman, contain an unfallen, divine Christ child? Surely not. And they couldn't come to grips with good answers very readily that persuaded at least the multitudes. So, the bottom line is, is they had a big council. And at the big council, they decided that the biblical truth was, in fact, she was carrying the divine Christ child. There was a group of people following the, the Archbishop of Constantinople, Nestorius, who did not believe so. And Nestorius had his followers march through the streets on Christmas Day singing Christmas songs where they changed the words to reflect that Jesus was not God until after the birth. And Nestorius preached his Christmas sermon on that. It was a short time later Nestorius was kicked out of the church, lost his position, and in fact was expelled from the Roman Empire. He went with some of his other uh, followers. They established some monasteries in what's now Saudi Arabia, one of which Muhammad would go to as a nine-year-old boy 150 years later, where he learned the heresy that Jesus was not God in a full sense as the Son of God and took it forward to Muhammadism today, um, Islam. So anyway, Mary's pregnant. And we understand, as Matthew says, it's from the Holy Spirit. So she has the Christ child within her. And what's her to-be husband have to say about this? Well, he's going to put her aside quietly, but he gets a visit from an angel. And the angel says, no, you're not going to do that. Instead, you're going to marry her. You're going to have this child together. And you're going to name the child Joshua. Now you say, Larry looked at me like, what? It's Jesus. Jesus is the Greek word for Joshua. Okay? Joshua. Now, if we were pronouncing it as Hebrews, we don't, the Hebrews didn't pronounce the J. It was a Y sound to them. So it'd be Yeshua instead of Joshua. But you understand the, the Y becomes a J in English often. So it's short for Jehovah or Yahweh. That's what that Y is. It's an abbreviation. So Yeshua or Joshua. Yeshua is short for Yahweh Shua. Joshua is short for Jehovah Shua. Either way, that J or that Y sound stands for God. Shua is the Hebrew for salvation. Shuva. And so, Yehoshua, or Yeshua, Joshua, means God is salvation. And Matthew says that's to fulfill the scripture that he shall be called Emmanuel. God is with us. God is not only with us in the sense that he's present, but he's with us in the sense that he is for us. He is saving us. Where he is, there we may be also.
And that's what Joseph's told. And that's what happens. Now, Matthew doesn't end there. Matthew takes this a little bit further. So we'll scoot this over a little bit. And we'll see Jesus is actually born in Matthew. Matthew gives the birth of Jesus and explains that he's born. that song in there because I just couldn't kill it. You know, that song, you just almost just played the whole song all the way through and just sat out there with you. And had you join us and sing it. Uh, it's a traditional English melody. Green Sleeves is the melody uh, that uh, rumor says Henry VIII wrote, but he didn't. It's post-Henry VIII. It's an Elizabethan melody, most likely. But there was a 29-year-old British fella in the 1800s who, in the midst of sickness and family problems, wrote a number of hymns, and he, and he wrote these lyrics to go with this tune. And uh, we've got it today. It's one of the most beautiful Christmas carols. It's also one that's extremely scriptural. As we go through these carols today, we're going to look at some and try to figure out where they came from. Because some come very readily from Scripture, um, others don't. And so uh, we'll continue to look. Well, Jesus is born, and Matthew tells us it's in the days of King Herod. Now, we need to stop for a minute and know that, first of all, there were lots of Herods. Uh, it was a big family name back then. But in the days of King Herod, the scholars will place the birth of Jesus somewhere between 6 B.C. and 4 B.C. Between 6 and 4 B.C. Now, you've, if you've been in this class much, you've heard me talk about this before. This would be a whole lot easier if he was born in zero, okay, like he was supposed to have been. The problem is, the guy who figured it out just didn't have the engineering brain and the math to do it right. So the guy who tried to peg zero, a fellow, a monk, Dionysius Exegus, that's his Latin name. We can translate that into English as Dennis the Short. I didn't write it, it's just the way it is. So, Dennis the Short gets charged by the Pope to figure out when Jesus was born so they can change the calendar. And he messes up. He got it wrong a few years. So, we can't go back and just redo the whole calendar now. We live with what we've inherited from Dennis the Short. But we need to know when we study that somewhere around 4 B.C. is when Jesus was likely born. And we know that because of the time signatures within Scripture of who was alive and who was not. So in the days of King Herod, Jesus is born. Now, Matthew goes on to tell us something after that. Matthew says, scoot over. Matthew says, after Jesus was born, as Pastor Fleming pointed out this morning, the Magi came to visit. 
Do you remember this song? Remember that? Ever you sing that? Okay, well, it's based on this scripture out of Matthew, in part. Here's the scripture. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Now, that's the passage. You see what's missing? First of all, it does not say that there were three of them. Okay? It doesn't. Now, they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so scholars, not scholars, the early church just assumed if there were three presents, there were three of them. Because you don't go see the Messiah without a present, right? Unless maybe one of them was a twofer. One of them could have brought like two presents. Could have been two, but they were magi. We know they were plural because it's the plural form of the word. By the way, magi, as Pastor Fleming pointed out, uh, same Greek word that we get magic from. Uh, not necessarily that they were magicians in our sense, but they had this extra knowledge type stuff was the concept. But it doesn't say three. You know what else it doesn't say? It doesn't say they were kings. Now... Granted, the song wouldn't quite sound the same if it just said, we, some uncertain number of magi from Orient are. Doesn't quite have that flow, but that's what we know from Scripture. Well, now, where does this come from? It's real fun to look back. In the early church, we've talked in previous classes about origin. He's the fellow from Alexandria who read the Bible Three different ways. He, he read it literally, but thought that was the worst way to read the Old Testament. The, the, the better way was morally, and the best way of all was allegorically. Remember that fellow? And we talked about that. Okay. Well, he said that Isaac, the son of Abraham, is an allegorical figure of Jesus in the Old Testament. And Abimelech and two other kings came to see Abraham and blessed the boy. He said that's an allegorical type of what happened with the Magi. So we can figure the Magi were three and they were kings. And that's where it comes from. Uh, does, are they, we don't know. The Bible doesn't really tell us. But that's your song. Now, doesn't end there. We go back to where we were. Then we've got Luke. Luke gives some of the same information Matthew gives, but he adds some extra. Now, first of all, let me tell you, Luke does a chronology, a ge I mean a genealogy. But Luke's genealogy is different than Matthew's. And so you sit there and, and you walk through Matthew and so-and-so was the father of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. And you get it down to Joseph, the father of Jesus. And you say, well, what, what about Luke? Why is his different? And some people have used this to say that the Bible obviously has mistakes. 
But most scholars recognize that's not true. There are a number of different reasons why it would be this way. We know that Luke very carefully, very carefully researched and wrote his gospel. Luke has names and job titles right for obscure corners of the Roman world. In a time and in an age where genealogies were so important, where the records were so carefully kept, it's absurd to think that either Matthew, who wrote his gospel for the Jews, or Luke, who wrote his after serious research, would have made mistakes. So in all likelihood, they chased the genealogy through a different direction. Some say that the genealogy of one uh, gospel is of, math, of, is of, of the dad, Joseph, and the other is of the mom, Mary. A lot of scholars say, no, there's no basis for that. That's not the way the scripture reads, and you'd have to really work on the scripture. Some say the basis of it is the Leverite marriage. In other words, there are times where, as we know from the story of, of Ruth, which Dale taught, there are times where a man would die leaving his widow childless. And a brother would step in. And that would be the, uh, the, the Leverite husband. And so one may have gone through the, the, the genetic DNA and the other through the tribal DNA, if you will. We don't know the answer, but we do know that there's a genealogy and we know uh, uh, that it's there. After that, Luke gives us some details about John the Baptist being born. And he gives us some details about Mary herself when she finds out she's pregnant as a young teenage girl. And Mary has the visit with the angel and Mary sings the Magnificat. The Magnificat, I've got uh, a little bit up here. I'm going to play it in one of my favorite versions by John Michael Talbot. Play about a minute of it. You can read the scripture that it comes from uh, as you listen to it. And uh, uh, here's a little more Christmas song, I guess. The scripture... And the song should be playing. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. And my spirit exalts in God my Savior. For he has
that God would come into the life of a young lady, into a lowly estate to bless us. The power of the incarnation is tremendous. And while much debate has happened over the ages about the role of Mary, and and is Mary uh, more highly blessed or exalted than others, that's not a fuss that, that needs to inhabit our minds right now. What we need to do is recognize that Mary was blessed by God with a tremendous responsibility as well as an opportunity. But I will tell you that all of us are blessed by God with a tremendous responsibility and opportunity because Christ is reborn into each of us. And Mary gives us a lesson of a humility response that recognizes the responsibility, recognizes the blessing, and in humility prays that God's name will forever be holy and exalted. And so we get the Magnificat out of Luke. Now, as we continue to go through our our Christmas teachings, Luke also gives us the angels on high. The shepherds are out in their fields watching their flocks by night, which I might add indicates that Jesus was probably born between March and November. We'll get to that in a minute. Probably, I don't want to like douse your Christmas spirit. Okay. But we're celebrating it on December 25th, not because it happened. This is kind of like, have you ever had a birthday and you just couldn't get everybody together for your birthday, so you celebrated it on another day? Okay, we're kind of doing that with him. Okay, but that's okay. So the shepherds are in their field, and from this we get. The herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. With By the way, when the wise men came, a little trivia that's not in the lesson. When the wise men came and they wanted to know how to find Jesus, they went and asked the, the priests. And they said, where's the Messiah going to be born? Did you know that the priests immediately answered the question? They didn't have to say, well, hang on, let me go check my concordance. Or let me go email my Bible teacher. Or let me go ask my wife. They answered the question. They quoted the Micah passage and said, Bethlehem. But from you, Bethlehem Ephratah, from you will come one who will be the ruler of many. So the, the wise men come. They ask the priest. They said, we know the Messiah is being born. Where is he supposed to be born? The priests respond, Bethlehem, and then say, bye, have fun. Now, do you want to be the wise men who are going to find Jesus, even if they don't have all the head knowledge? Or would you rather be the guy with all the head knowledge who doesn't even bother to go find Jesus? Can you imagine? what? That's just like one of the biggest tragedies in the world. 
to be so smart that when they come and say, where's the Messiah going to be born? You can quote the scripture, tell them right where he is, and then go about your day without bothering to go see the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Anyway, sorry, I digress. Just one of those pet peeves of mine that I wish I could go back and say to the people, what are you doing? Go. But anyway. Okay, so let's keep going. Now, I want to talk about how the New Testament church celebrated the birth of Christ. Okay? Now, let's talk about how the early church celebrated the birth of Christ. In other words, the New Testament church did not. There is no record at all in the Bible, at least, of the New Testament church celebrating the birth of Christ. Some people say that that's an indication we should not celebrate it today. I do not agree with those people. But they're entitled to their opinion. The birth of Christ was not celebrated in the early church for a number of different reasons. First of all, the early church was not thinking they were going to be around for 2,000 years. The early church was of the mentality that Jesus was coming back any day now. They truly thought it was, look, if Jesus was coming back tomorrow, I would not be preaching this sermon today. I'd be doing something else. And all of us would be going to sell everything we have to make sure everybody's as comfortable as they can be until tomorrow and to use whatever funds we can to go out and, and take care of the poor and the needy in any effort to get anybody into the kingdom. We'd be burning up the phone lines with all of our family and loved ones who don't know the Lord. And we would be the most evangelistically intense people possible, I suspect, wouldn't we? And that's the way the early church was. And then they started having to shift gears and started trying to figure out, wait a minute, it may be a while. Finally, the apostles start dying off one after the other. John's the last one to go. Paul is writing letters to Timothy saying, okay, well, I'm about to die. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. There's a crown laid up for me. But before I go, here's what I need you to do. And not just you, you teach the people coming after you. Because the church was beginning to realize that Jesus, as Peter says at the end of his life in his letter, Jesus may not be coming back just tomorrow. He may, but he may not. So anyway, the early church is where they start celebrating. And the early church doesn't celebrate it initially because there's a strong branch of the early church culturally that thought only demons and pagans and really bad people celebrated birthdays. Nobody celebrated birthdays. They celebrated death days. But as society and civilization moved on and birthdays started to be celebrating, the church started celebrating the birth of Christ. Now the question becomes, when was Jesus born? Because by the time the church is celebrating it, people had lost track of when Jesus was born. We don't know when December 25th became Christmas Day. But it did become it by the 300s. In the 300s, we know it. December 25th, Christmas Day. There are two main theories about why it's December 25th. One is the fact that the Romans had a pagan holiday to the pagan god Saturnalia, uh, Saturn. It was called Saturnalia. And the god Saturn, it was this big, week-long, horribly e hedonistic, uh, drunken, orgy 
bash. And some people believe that this was a good time for the church to celebrate the birth of Christ because even though Christianity was illegal, nobody's really going to notice when they're all getting toasted. That's one theory. Still holds uh, uh, the leading thought probably in, in Europe. In America, the leading thoughts kind of changed. In America, it's now a calculation theory. And here's, here's the basis of this theory. The early church believed that very holy people seemed to always die on their birthday. Did you know that about the early church? If you're really holy, you die on your birthday. Now that, in a way, is kind of a lousy birthday present. But it does kind of give you a bit of self-confidence for the rest of the year, you know. I'm going to live holy. I'm good for another 363 days. You sweat that 24 hours, but once you make it through, whoosh, one more. Um, <laughs> now, the reason the early church thought this is not just because they were nutty. It's because they were reading scripture. And scripture would say things like, Noah died on the, whatever, 765th, when he was 765 years old. And all these holy men would say how old they were, and it was always in years. And the early church figured, well, if it's 765 years, it's 765 years. Not 765 years in two days. Not 765 years in three months and four days. It said 765 years, so he must have died exactly on his birthday. And that was their thinking. Well, now, the holiest man to ever live is Jesus. So Jesus had to die on his birthday. But, but, they figure that Jesus dies not on the anniversary of his birth because his true incarnation happened nine months earlier. And they're able to trace back and think the incarnation would have happened on March 25th. So if the incarnation happened on March 25th, when did he die? April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December. Well, if he was a timely child, which surely the Lord was, would not have kept Mary waiting, you know, nine months later, December 25. And there are other dates that it also coincides with. So this, this is another theory of why December 25 was the focus date. Both theories have some strengths, both have some weaknesses. Bottom line is, we don't know. So that's the early church. Now, if we want to try and figure out where Christmas is in the modern church, okay, well, I've totally messed this up. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about midnight for a moment. Midnight. Was Jesus born at midnight? That's this song. It came, upon it came upon a midnight clear, that glorious song of hope. Okay, skip it. Now, where does that come from, the idea Jesus was born at midnight? It came upon a midnight clear. You want to know where it came from? The Apocrypha. You sing that song, you're basically saying you're Catholic. 
That's, that's just that's humor. Um, I mean, you may be Catholic, but it, it comes out of the part of the Bible that the Catholic Church embraces, but most Protestants do not view as the authoritative to the level of, uh, of, uh, of, of the rest of Scripture or of Scripture. Now, by the way, we do plan on studying the Apocrypha when we get to it and seeing what difference that makes. But one of the differences is out of the wisdom of Solomon there. And in the wisdom of Solomon, there is this passage. Whoops. While all things were in quiet silence, and that night was in the midst, or middle, midnight, of her swift course, thine almighty word leaped down from heaven out of thy royal throne. And the church viewed that as prophetic of the, of the incarnation, or the birth of Christ. And so, since it happened in the midst of the night, or in the middle of the night, it's at midnight. Which makes that whole birthday thing even more interesting. Is it the 24th or the 25th? Or the 25th or the 26th? Then we've got a whole new set of problems. But being Protestants, we'll move along. Celebration in the modern church. Where do we get where we are today? Well, let's start with the fact that by 1000 AD in England, they were celebrating a midnight mass in honor of the midnight birth of Christ. And this Mass was known as Christ's Mass. And over time, as words slur and ideas run together, Christ's Mass becomes Christmas. And it stretched out from simply the service to the day. And so the night before is the eve of Christ's Mass, or Christmas Eve, and then we have Christmas Day. And that's where it comes from. Now, nativity scenes. Nativity scenes started in the 1200s by, any suggestions? You've been reading along, that's not even fair to ask. St. Francis of Assisi. St. Francis thought it was a great teaching tool. And it was. It's like a PowerPoint in 3D. It's got the nativity scene and you can talk about the characters and you can pick them up and hold them and say, let me tell you about the divine Christ child or here are the wise men, also known as three kings. Here are the, you know, shepherds and you could use it and you could teach. And that was very important at a time where people couldn't read and people didn't have Bibles and they needed to learn the story. And not only was St. Francis responsible for the nativity scene, but St. Francis and his followers, his brotherhood, also went around singing Christmas carols. They were the original ones taking Christmas carols and going and caroling so that people could hear the good news put to verse. During the Middle Ages is the time also where Christmas pageants started appearing. And there were a lot of Christmas pageants being performed and acted out. You couldn't go to the movie uh, uh, theater because they didn't have movies. The TV shows were, I mean, they might have had I Love Lucy, but they didn't have much else on TV. This is a long time ago. And so you've got some entertainment issues and the entertainment came in the form of, of Christmas pageants. However, it was not long before the best Christmas pageant ever became the worst. And Christmas pageants were laced with revelry, debauchery, sexuality, drunkenness, 
It was an absolutely horrendous, unholy display. And so when the reformers came along in the church, Martin Luther, Calvin, and others, they distanced themselves from the celebration of Christmas. Because Christmas was associated with what really was paganism in the guise of Christmas pageants. And so Parliament, for a period of time in England, even declared it illegal to celebrate Christmas. The Puritan fathers who came over from England and settled New England here were very disdainful of Christmas. Christmas really reinstalled itself in America through the influence of Dutch and German and Italian people. Our English heritage is not big on Christmas. Historically, you know. So, um, that happens within the Middle Ages. Where do we go from there? Well, you don't have Christmas celebrated much until we reach a point in the 1800s where St. Nicholas makes an appearance. Now, St. Nicholas was this actual fellow who lived... Uh-oh, we lost him. New York City in the early 1800s. I'll bring back St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas was an actual man who lived, uh, who had done a number of things. He had given... Uh, uh, there's rumors that there was a man who had daughters and he didn't have the dowry for the daughters to get married. So St. Nicholas, uh, Nicholas of Myra would come and put gold in his window at night so that the man could get his daughters married off. Um, the, the, the St. Nicholas became the patron saint of unmarried girls, I don't know, but uh, became the patron saint of sailors and a number of others. More churches named after St. Nicholas than anybody else other than Mary and Jesus. Anyway, so St. Nicholas, real person back in the 400s, that's who he was, 300s, 400s. But we fast forward, in New York City in the early 1800s, things were a mess. There was squalor, there was abandoned, kids were all over the place, they were in gangs, they were, they had trouble, my friend, right there in New York City, with a capital T that rhymed with P and it stood for pool. They really had trouble, had to figure out a way to keep the young ones moral after school. And so what they decided to do, instead of bringing in Robert Preston and the Music Man, is they decided that they needed some inspirational protection. And they invoked St. Nicholas as the patron saint of New York City and all of its orphaned kids and troublemaker kids. And there, were, there was a, 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 a poem written to that effect. In 1922, a fellow named Clark Clement Moore took what had been celebrated as December 6th, the feast day of St. Nicholas, and bumped it to December 25th as part of Christmas. And Clark Clement Moore, in 1822, wrote a poem. That poem was entitled, A Visit from St. Nick. It had an alternate title, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas, when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse." The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. Because the kids of New York were being taught, you've got to quit acting out. If you act out, St. Nicholas will not be your protector. Will not take care of you. Will not come see. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. 
And so Clark Clement Moore writes Night Before Christmas. Within 20 years, it's published and it's all over America. By the mid-1840s, it's everywhere. And with it, the traditions that went with it. Okay, so that's St. Nick, and that's how he comes in. How do we get to from there to Santa Claus? I will tell you, first let's do Kris Kringle. Now nah, we'll do Santa Claus first. Santa Claus. Santa Claus. The Dutch, the Dutch that settled New York City didn't speak English the way we do. And Sancti is the way they would say saint. And Colossus is from Nicholas. Santa Claus. Santa Claus is just a aberration of Saint Nicholas from the Dutch as it came into America. The Dutch settled part of New York City. It was called New Amsterdam. And, uh, and, and uh, in fact, if you go to Old Amsterdam in Holland, you'll find right next to it Harlem. Same thing, settled by Dutch. And so that part of New York City, Harlem. Anyway, St. Nicholas. Now, what about Kris Kringle? Well, the Germans, Luther in particular, was not real happy with the way that, that things were being celebrated over in Germany. I told you that the Reformation people had real problems with Christmas. So Luther started talking about the importance of honoring the Christ child. And Chris Kendall in Old German is the way you would say the Christ child. And over time it becomes Chris Kringle. So you've got Chris Kringle, you've got Santa Claus, you've got the Feast of St. Nicholas. It brings us up to our commercialism today. My favorite story of all. How many of you in this room remember Montgomery Wards? Okay, it was one of the old, it was like a Sears and Roebuck in its day. In 1939, they needed a big promo to push their Christmas stuff. So Robert May wrote a book. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And the book was a smashing success. So much so that his brother-in-law put the whole concept to music. And they tried to get someone to sing it. And some different people sort of did. And then someone imposed upon Gene Autry to sing it in 1949. He didn't want to. He was upset about it. But he sang it anyway. And it became the biggest selling record not only of his life, but even into the 1980s. It was the second largest selling record in the history of American music. And that's where we landed. Now, there are lots of other great stories. I've left out Handel's Messiah and the story about his, his housekeeper coming in to check on him. I think it was his housekeeper. It may have been a, a, a boy who helped him with some stuff instead, whatever you'd call that, but came in to check on him and found him just weeping as he had finished transcribing the Hallelujah Chorus. And the boy said, why are you, why are you crying? What's wrong? He said, I think I've just seen the face of God. There are some incredible stories behind our music. There are some incredible stories behind our traditions. But when you sort to the root of them all, we're making a mistake if we don't realize, oh, the Christmas tree, I left that out. Ah, eh, next year. Uh, 
Christmas trees. Germans brought them over. Didn't even have them here in America until the 1800s, late 1800s. Fascinating story. Another day. What I want you to take home from this, though, is that a Savior has been born. And I don't know if it was December 25th or March the 19th or what day it was. But I know a Savior has been born. Glory to God in the highest because it's changed who I am. It's changed my life. It changed the direction of everything that I do. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, not only in the world as a Savior, not only Jesus, who saves His people from sin, Yeshua, Joshua, not only that, but He is born inside me. Not because I'm worthy. I think I'm... You think about the dirty manger where He was born the first time. I think I'm dirtier than that when He comes into my life. It's fitting for him to be born in a manger first because he is reborn within his people. And we're not any much cleaner than a manger. And frankly, regardless of how uppity and high we think we are, we're not any higher than a manger. And yet Christ will come into us in all of his glory and open up his life for us. So my final point for home... I hope you have a Merry Christmas. I hope that it's everything you want it to be. I hope that you've got a chance, regardless of whether you're with family, whether you're with friends. You know, you have an appointment with Jesus. And nobody can take that from you. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do pray that you'll bless each person here. And these holidays for some are wonderful times. For others, they're very tough times. And it's my devout prayer to you in the blood of Jesus that you, I ask you sincerely, Lord, that you will make this Christmas a special Christmas for everyone, regardless of where they are in this world, that it'll be a time of your indwelling within them and that we will all take time to pause and get past the commercialism and get to the miracle of you in us. In Jesus we pray. Amen.